0: So let me read to you uh, the word of God from Exodus 15 this morning. Then Moses and the people of Israel sang this song to the Lord, saying, I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. This is my God, and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his host he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. The floods covered them. They went down to the depths like a stone. Your right hand, O Lord, glorious in power. Your right hand, O Lord, shatters the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you overthrow your adversaries. You send out your fury. It consumes them like stubble. At the blast of your nostrils, the waters piled up. The floods stood up in a heap. The deeps congealed in the heart of the sea. The enemy said, I will pursue. I will overtake. I will divide the spoil. My desire shall have its fill of them. I shall draw my sword. My hand shall destroy them. But you blew with your wind. The sea covered them, and they sank like lead in the mighty waters. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand. The earth swallowed them. You have led in your steadfast love the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as stone. Till your people, O Lord, pass by. Till the people pass by whom you have purchased. You will bring them in. Then Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we come and... uh, Confess that we have no power, no wisdom on our own, and that we need you to instruct. But more than that, Lord, um, we could not learn enough things uh, to be able to save ourselves. You are our Savior. You are the one who changes, who blesses, who encourages, who gives life. And so, Lord, in your kindness, we pray that you would use my words. You would use this time by your Spirit to give us life to free us and refresh us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We recently um, took our boys to a birthday party. A friend of theirs from school is having a party, and we dropped them off and then got to take uh, Ruthie on a little date. Bethany and I went to Hovander Park and walked around with Ruthie, and as we were walking in, she was holding both of our hands, uh, jumping and giggling and just singing. And If you've ever been around her, you know how this works. Um, I'm with my mommy and daddy, and we're together because we love, yes, we love, and it's special. Uh -uh. Uh, (laughs) I looked at Bethany and I said, you know, before I met Ruthie, I didn't know someone could be this happy. You know, I just didn't know it was possible that someone could actually have this much happiness. The reality is, is I think I've forgotten what that feels like. Uh, Somewhere after fourth grade, uh, that stopped for me. In fact, I think the same moment that I decided to stop singing and dancing in front of other people was the moment when I decided I would never be mocked again. Uh, When you're silly, people can make fun of you. When you sing, but you sing poorly, people can mock you, and it's terrible. Um, So by the time I came back to know the Lord and came back in high school uh, and came to church, uh, the thing I was really most interested in were the teachings, you know, the serious parts. But the singing was just like, Ugh, can we get through this already? And to be fair, a lot of the songs that we sang in the 90s were just dumb, okay? Um, and I still think so. But a lot of them weren't, and it didn't matter. The fact is, is that I did not want to do it. So actually, um, <laughs> my friend of mine and I, a kid I grew up with, Kevin, uh, whenever we'd sing in youth group, we'd sing these cheesy songs like Open the Eyes of My Heart Lord. He and I, if you know the band uh, Crash Test Dummies, you know? Mm -hmm. And it's in these deep voices. We'd sing, Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Anything to not sing sincerely about my heart, right? Ew, I don't want to talk about my heart in front of all these people. Why is it that we have such extreme and opposite reactions to singing? It's actually not because we don't like singing, you love singing. You love singing. Every time your favorite song comes on in the car, in the radio, especially if you're in the shower or you're away from someone, what do you do? You sing it out. You belt it out. You can't help it. Uh, In our family, uh, there's a song that everyone, once you start singing it, it just continues on. We've watched the movie Trolls with Ruthie a couple times. And Justin Timberlake has a song. I got that sunshine in my. Got that good soul in my. And it's going to be the rest of your heads for the rest of the time, right? So you're welcome. We can't help but want to be a part of the thing that we love and enjoy. We're made for that. And so I would sing at home in my room to whatever was on 107.7 the end, right? Depeche Mode and Oasis and whatever else is playing. Thanks, John. Uh, We sing because we love. Because we love. We're overwhelmed with the thing that's happening to us. And we long in anticipation to see the thing we love come through. We want to not only see the glory and the beauty of it, but to be a part of it. We can't help but want that. And so in middle school, I'm very much in awe of myself, and all of my feelings. And so who wouldn't sing Depeche Mode in Oasis, right? That's what you do. Arvo Pert is an Estonian composer, one of my favorites. He's still alive. Uh, beautiful, beautiful music. Uh, he gave an address, someone gave an, uh, an honorary degree, and he says this in his address about making music, about singing. The most sensitive musical instrument is the human soul. The next is the human voice. One must purify the soul until it begins to sound. A composer is a musical instrument, and at the same time, a performer on that instrument. The instrument has to be in order to produce sound. One must start with that and not with the music. Through the music, the composer can check whether his instrument is tuned and to what key it is tuned. We do sing, and what we sing about says so much of our souls. So the question singing asks of us this morning is to what key is our soul tuned? To what key is our soul tune? What are we in awe of? What washes over us? And that's what we're thinking about this morning. So, three points. We are made to sing, we are made to be awed by God, and we are made to do battle by singing. That's the punk point to do battle by singing. So first, we are made to sing. Singing is this exuberance, right? It's a free expression of deep joy and beauty that's captured you. In a word, it's the thing we're not good at, celebration, right? We're Northwesterners and we're Presbyterians. That's a double whammy, okay? Uh, And so that means that when we celebrate, we celebrate in proper and restrained ways. You know, very nice. Um, But what you see in this passage is very different. Look at verse 20. Then Miriam the prophetess, by the way, first mention of prophet in the Bible. You're welcome. Then Miriam the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. So first off, she's a prophetess. She gets up and leads this praise, not because anyone asked her to, but because she takes the lead. But it's also not a docile, don't notice me worship. You know what I'm talking about. Some of you sing this way. This is a loud worship. You know, we have tambourines up here. Where do they go? Here they are. Tambourines are loud. They are loud. And when you dance, it takes up physical space. We could not have the chairs in this sanctuary if we got to praising and worshiping like this. Plus, it's repetitive. Do you notice that? Look at verse 21. Miriam sang to them, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. Now look at verse 1. Sing to the Yahweh, to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. It's the exact same words. It's the exact same words. Now, by the way, that means that her leading does not compete with Moses. It's a support to him. It's never a competition, but it's a leading nonetheless. But Miriam leads these ladies in an impromptu chorus. She takes a line, and they go out dancing, and they exuberantly express their praise and joy before the Lord. They come out, and they're loud, and they're excited, and they're dancing. Amen. But that's not what most of us think is biblical worship. (laughs) Why? Well, it's a shame. Maybe that's why we're bored with worship. Perhaps that's why evangelicals have whored out their hymns to Nashville's music industry. Uh, Perhaps that's why we think that to worship is just to do the right things. Why do we not think of loud tambourine and dancing and choral repetition and women taking initiative in worship as biblical? Well, I think at least one reason, there's many more, is that we're afraid of music. We're afraid of music. You know, um, there's a a cult leader, claims to be a Christian teacher named Bill Gothard, who is famously known for condemning music with African roots. Uh, He says that the tribal beats get control of your hips and make you start gyrating. Um, And somehow, supposedly, the music from Europe is more pure. I hope you can see the error there that this is basic racism baptized with Christian words, right? We, we cannot countenance that. But he's right about one thing. Music does influence us. It controls us. It shapes us. And it can be used for evil. Just as much as a manipulative music in a TV ad as in just the nasty songs that are around. And I don't just mean hip-hop. I mean country songs, Right? Kenny Chesney, right? You know what I mean? Okay. Music is meant to grab a hold of you in spite of the way that you resist. If we start playing Michael Jackson right now, you might all know that he's a pervert. That's true. But what's going to happen to your foot? You can't help it. It's so good, right? It is meant to grab a hold of you, to awaken you, to alert you. And this is exactly what we see in the end of Deuteronomy. Let me read this to you from Deuteronomy 31. Write this song and teach it to the people of Israel. Put it in their mouths that this song may be a witness for me against the people of Israel. For when I have brought them into the land flowing with milk and honey, which I swore to give to their fathers, and they have eaten and are full grown and fat, they will turn to other gods and serve them and despise me and break my covenant. And when many evils and troubles have come upon them, this song shall confront them as a witness." for it will live unforgotten in the mouths of their offspring. We are meant to sing so that our hearts will be confronted, awoken, revived. Singing plants truth within us at a deeper level than just listening and discussing. It does things to us. In fact, if you're singing properly, your whole body's involved. You know, John mentioned to me this last week that singing uses both sides of your brain, both the verbal side, I guess it's left, and then the melodic side is your right. You're using both sides of your brain, but actually you're meant to to actually be using your whole body as well. Laying on the floor, that's a biblical worship stance, by the way. Raising your hands on your knees, breaking a sweat. Singing is meant to lay hold of us in ways we can't control. That's exactly the point. And we are meant to have the awe of the person of God wash over us to bring us to tears. To have our chest swell and tremble and, dare I say, even move a little bit with our bodies. You know, that's what the opening lines are all about. Look at verses 1 and 2. I'm going to start with the song. I will sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. What does it mean for the Lord to be our song? It means that our hearts leap at his name. And we can't help but want to be a part of singing his praises, that he has the center place in our love. Now, I know for some of you, uh, singing is a new thing. Now, I didn't learn how to sing by taking music classes. I remember opening up the Trinity Hymnal for the first time and seeing all these circles. Some of them were whole. Some of them had open parts, and there were lines going in various places. I didn't know what to do with that. I've learned singing just by being a part of the church. We don't have public singing in many places anymore. So first off, it practically, technically, if this is a technical challenge, learning to sing, Welcome. Good place to learn, but also uh, the Angersmas and Hung Ern and the Van Hoffegans have been leading a hymn sing in this building uh, twice a month on Sunday evenings. It would be a great place just to go and try it out. But for others of us, of us this uh, the freedom in singing is missing for another reason. Uh, we are afraid of being shamed and mocked. Uh, this is what happened to me after fourth grade, I think. Just the years of mocking and shaming finally wore me down so I realized uh, it's better for me to hide and protect myself than it is to really freely offer myself because when I do this when I offer myself to the Lord I'm vulnerable and we've all had this happen to us to one degree or another so where does that freedom come from well it comes from knowing God It comes from knowing God and that's our second point we are made to be awed by God in awe of God I just want to point out the structure of the song actually points this out to us. Uh, Verses 1 through 3, you get this overview. Yahweh is the man of war. He's thrown the horse and his rider into the sea. And then uh, verses 4 through 10 recount everything that he did, right? He puts the waters on the side. He clogs up their wheels. and, And then verses 13 through 18 are looking forward, expecting God to defeat all their future enemies and give them a home with him. Right, He's going to bring them to his abode. But right in the middle of the song is verse 11. Who is like you, O Yahweh, among the gods? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glorious deeds, doing wonders? That's the main point of the song. There is no one like Yahweh. They're stunned by who he is. Well, what's so unique about our God? Well, unlike all the other gods of the Egyptians, unlike all the other gods of America, our God saves the weak. He saves slaves. The people we'd rather turn away from, he saves them. People who couldn't contribute anything to their own salvation, he goes out of his way to find them. And he saves them without any help. I don't know if you remember this from chapter 14. Moses says to them, fear not. Stand firm, see the salvation of Yahweh, which he will work for you today. For the Egyptians whom you see today, you shall never see again. Yahweh will fight for you. You have only to be silent. Israel does nothing to earn or contribute to their saving. God intervenes and does everything for them out of his own gracious character. And it's not because they're righteous. Actually, the verses before the ones I just read, they say to Moses, hey Moses, are, did we run out of graves in Egypt? Is that why you brought us into the wilderness? Uh, really nasty. <laughs> These are not a righteous people. God saves them because he's gracious. But they're also in awe of God because he's powerful. It's all over this passage. I don't know if you notice this. His power is everywhere. Look at verse 1. He has triumphed gloriously. Verse 6, your right hand, O Yahweh, glorious in power, your right hand, O Yahweh, shatters the enemy. Verse 7, in the greatness of your majesty, you overthrew your adversaries, you send out your fury. It consumes them like rubble. Verse 16, terror and dread fall upon them because of the greatness of your arm. They are still a stone. His majesty, his fury, his triumph are all talked about with the same awe, and happiness that some of us talk about a brand new car with. Or the way I talk about brand new bikes. Whoa, that's beautiful. <laughs> it's whew, It catches you off guard. It takes your breath away. We are stunned. Wow, that is awesome. It's funny, though. Um, we don't have many songs that sing about God's wrath and fury. Can you think of any? I can think of a couple. We don't sing them. <laughs> that's no jab on us. It's just to say we, we don't. As a culture, this is not on our radar in many ways. But I think this actually gets back to that same lack of freedom. We're afraid of having an angry and cruel God because we immediately think of the other angers we've experienced. We've all experienced quite a bit of evil anger, evil power, power used to take advantage of us or of people we love, fury out of control, So how is it that God's wrath could become sweet? Is that something that we could actually be happy from? Well, I think so. Because we imagine that God is poised like all the other bullies of the world. And yet it's the exact opposite with his wrath. God is poised not to take advantage of us, but to judge evil. To judge the bullies, he is utterly opposed to evil and hates it. And that means that uh, both in the ways in which you've suffered, the Lord is keeping track. He's watching. That means he notices the evils that you have endured in your life. Did you know that? That he notices, that he watches. You are not forgotten also means that the Lord takes seriously the ways in which we have been bullies. Friends, I was a bully in elementary school. And yet the Lord has saved us both. His wrath brings judgment not only for our enemies, but even for our own evil. And he purchases us out of our bondage to evil. And so God brings the whole hurricane of his power and his wrath against evil onto himself and not us. That's the bewildering thing about the gospel is that we want a God who judges and yet when he shows up, what does he do? He takes on flesh. He subjects himself to false accusations and he is wrongly accused and punished and crucified And so when verse 2 says the Lord has become my salvation, it means that God himself, who has the full scope of fury and wrath and power over evil, comes and steps into that place and receives it in his own body for our evil. He is at the same time the judge of all that's evil and the one who underwent judgment. So we are saved through his wrath, and it's glorious. And so when we miss the beauty of his wrath, that God would judge evil and expunge it from the world, and yet has begun it by himself suffering for us, that he would save not only those who are bullied, but also bullies. When we miss these things, we miss the full scope of the character of God. And so I want you to see that so long as we are willing to truncate who God is, we have to truncate the things we feel in his presence. If God does not hate evil, then I certainly can't bring the things that I hate. I certainly can't bring my sorrows before him. I really hate cancer at the moment. Amen? We are meant to bring the whole range of our emotions before the Lord in worship. And that's why in the psalms you have psalms of praise, you have psalms of wisdom, you have imprecatory psalms. Because God is actually able to handle all those things. And yet some of our psalms can leave us thinking that God is very soft-minded and soft-hearted. That he's tender because he's a pushover. But God's tenderness is so much more glorious than that. It's a tenderness bought by his own wrath, falling on himself. And that is so much more beautiful than a trite and shallow love. And so the thing I want you to see is that all of this wrath, all of the power, all of the majesty is all built around and focused for the end of bringing his people to himself. Look at verse 13. You have led your people in steadfast love whom you have redeemed. You have guided them by your strength to your holy abode. Verse 17 says that the Lord has brought us to the place which he has made for his abode. That is to say, God is actively, carefully, patiently, zealously working to give us fellowship with himself. He wants us to move in. That's what verse 17 says. He's built a home and he's bringing us there. Everything in Exodus is actually about this. The whole point of the book is that you would know that Yahweh is his name, that I am the Lord, that it's Yahweh who saves you, that you would know Yahweh. Now, the problem with uh, we don't see some of this, some of the dynamics in this is because uh, in our English Bibles, Yahweh is translated Lord. So we see capitals, all capitals, L-O-R-D. That stands for Y-H-W-H in Hebrew, the proper name of God. And if you remember when Moses was called and God said, okay, You're going to go to my people and tell them that the God of their fathers is going to save them. Moses says, great. Um, And who should I say that that God is? What does he say? He says, you should tell them that my name is Yahweh. My name is I am that I am. That is to say, God is a title. Yahweh is his name. Israel's coming to learn through this whole process that this is not just a God or even the greatest gods of all gods, but a God who has a name, who has come down to us, who has revealed himself to us, who is working for us to have fellowship with him. So the good news for us as well is that um, we might be just like Israel. They've been coming to know who he is throughout this whole process. And so finally, after 15 chapters, they're ready to sing. Some of you this morning might still be coming to know who God is. And so you might not be ready to sing. That's okay. That's fitting. But what I want you to see here is this is an invitation. This whole passage, the exuberance of this passage, is an invitation to what you were made to be. To be able to drink deeply from the pleasures of knowing God, the true God, and be able to sing freely. But for those of us who do know God and are Christians, we do have to ask ourselves, are we awed by him? Or have we kept him aside as part of the wallpaper? And That's really our last point. We are called to do battle by singing. We are called to do battle by singing. You know, at every critical moment in the Bible and in church history, there's a song. In Exodus, when the waters flow out in Numbers, after they defeat the enemies in Judges... Uh, when David brings the ark to Jerusalem, God's people going to Jerusalem to worship. When Jesus is born, the angels in the heavens open up. And what happens? They're singing. When, uh, when the jailer is saved in Philippi, Paul and Silas are singing. Every important moment in the book of Revelation is a song. In fact, uh, all throughout church history, the same thing. Every major theological controversy in the history of the church has a song attached to it. We sing one of them. Of the Father's love begotten was like the motto, the marching motto against those who would say that Jesus is not God. Same thing in the Reformation. Luther wrote all these songs. Calvin rewrites all the music and has these Genevan jigs, as they call them. Uh, But no less, in our own history, the Christians who led the abolitionist movement in the 1800s, they have songs. The Christians who led the civil rights movement, they sing our songs. But it's misleading to say that we are doing battle by singing. In fact, Exodus says, the Lord will fight for you. You only have to be silent. It's not our songs that win the day. It's the Lord. But there is something to this. So what do I mean by saying we are doing battle by singing? Well, I mean that our battle is not ultimately against Pharaoh. And it's not ultimately about theological points. And it's not ultimately about civil rights. Those are good and praise the Lord. Our battle is against Satan. Plain and simple, against the face of evil. And we are called to do battle with him, with Satan, the unseen power that corrupts and perverts institutions, the tempter who would turn churches into safe havens for abusers and predators, the one who would spur and support the torture of our brothers and sisters in North Korea, in Sudan, The rape and murder of Christians in Nigeria. That is our enemy. And we are called to sing against him. Our battle is with the one who accuses us day and night with our sins. With the ways that we have complied with him. And so we sing, as Paul says in Romans 16, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. We do battle by singing because each time we see God's victory over our enemies, we sing and we taunt Satan. I almost called this sermon taunting the devil. Right? That's what we're doing. This is the punk rock version of worship. Do you see that? We are taunting the devil and saying, you have no power because Jesus has borne all of God's wrath in himself. And so what do you have left? Nothing. Our Lord will put his foot on your neck, Satan, and you have nothing. Your doom is sure. And so every time we sing, we taunt him. So please don't soothe him with half hearted worship. He would love that. He would love that. Mouth along. Hmm? God, you're great. Don't soothe him with half-hearted worship. Break a sweat. Lose your voice. Strain your back. Raise your hands. Be overwhelmed with God's goodness, with his grace, with his glory, his mercies. And so join us as we chant, as our singing joins with the saints through the millennia and wafts through every demonic chasm in the world as a haunting song of their defeat. Every time we sing and join with the saints of God's people, we are singing about the defeat of Satan and it bothers him. I like that a lot. But it's better than that because actually every time we sing, the scriptures say it's like an incense before the Lord, that the Lord responds with delight. That the Lord responds with delight. That He actually enjoys us. So let me just say this. It matters that you worship. It matters that you worship. The only thing that remains is our first question Who or what are you in awe of? What awes you? Your soul does sing. What does it sing for? Let's pray. Lord Jesus. We give you thanks and praise that you have put your foot on the neck of Satan. God, we are so thankful. And we do pray, Lord, that you would continue to give us full joy in you, that you would deepen our joy in your victory, that you have saved us from those oppressive powers, even from our own sin, our own destruction. Lord, we pray that you would give us greater freedom to sing to you, that you would deepen our love for you each week, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, Daniel. Well, uh, one of the things uh, Dan has said is that singing is never just merely singing, and you could probably say something like that about our profession of faith.